Hi, I'm Mike. Hey, I'm Kelsey. We're into telling you stories. Sometimes funny, sometimes awkward, sometimes creepy or sad, but who knows? Every month it's different, but no matter what, you'll be asking yourself. Okay, WTF. Welcome, friends. Hi, Mike. Oh, hi, Kelsey. Hi. Don't see me there. <laughs> um, <laughs> happy Tuesday. Thank you. And also with you. And also with me. Thank you so much. Um, today I'm joined by two of my three furry friends, one of whom has been needing round the clock care, although she's much better now. I have two cats. One cat had a medical emergency uh, mm. last week. And then, you know, so basically her medical emergency, because I'm going to talk about her. and I don't okay. care about privacy for her right now. Is okay. that something in the basement where her litter box lives scared her. And because of who she is as a sweet angel baby soul, yeah. uh, she refused to go downstairs. So she refused to use the bathroom. And then she got oh, all backed up. No. And then like four grand later, she just needed like enemas. <laughs> and then she's been, you know, living her best life now. So here she is. Uh, she's Ugh. here with me. And her brother, uh, who's licking her to sleep. So we are not alone today. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm happy to be with them. I I do love those for babies as well as if they were my own. Oh, true that I'm, truth. I'm so happy the aforementioned sick baby <laughs> is so much better. I don't know if you want me to respect their privacy enough not to say their name. Silhouette. So, Silly. Silly. <laughs> I'm I'm putting it all out on the line because uh, what a journey. What an expensive journey to be scared of a basement door. So mm -hmm. much so that you hold in your poop for yeah. like days on end until you essentially it turns hard and you can't pass it. And then yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's not fun for anyone. I can't imagine. No, it was disgusting. Actually, it was painful for her. Absolutely disgusting for us. So mentally painful for you, too. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But we persevere because we love them. Mm -hmm. um, and she is thriving, as she does. Anyway, Excellent. anything new with you, my friend? Oh, not too much. I've got a fun story, but I hear you also have a fun story. I do. Tonight. I mean, actually, okay. I will okay. preface this by saying... Whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, hey, hey. You shouldn't, like, preface with like an set an audience expectation be like this one's not as cool because then you're gonna put that energy out there and then the okay. people who are listening are like well i'll just skip but no i was gonna do mostly a vibe check like okay okay this is giving fifth grade history with a twist vibes like okay different than what i've done before i can't say it vibes as like unique per se but okay. I will say that I've been personally interested in this for many reasons. And then I found some funky, cool stuff associated with it. So hmm. it vibes fifth grade history with a twist. Okay. Uh, vibe check. Mine deals with history, but it's mm -hmm. more like the kind that Florida is trying to get rid of that kind of history. Ah, interesting. Okay. 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 Some hints here. Yeah. So um, we're. We're, we'll head past fifth grade social studies <laughs> and then into CRT or something similar. 
I like this. Uh, I like this. We we're starting a little more simple and then we're getting to the meat. Mm. Yeah, I like this. as everything should. I like as that. everything should. So I'm the primer for mm. today. So shall we begin that? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So let's talk about something that many of us do far too much of for far too long, far too frequently. Something I did all day today before we sat down to record this episode and something I will do again all day tomorrow. Okay. Any guesses? Uh, well, the only thing I can think of is poor silly and being backed up and not going <laughs> to the bathroom regularly. Imagine um, if this episode was about like <laughs> the history of veterinary sciences. <laughs> yeah. The history of cats getting backed up because they are afraid oh to poop. <laughs> Okay. Any other guesses? Uh, I'm going to stick with that one. Uh, I'm locking in like it's the final Jeopardy question. I've already put down the money and I know that this is the answer. You have lost. Um, The answer is work. Uh, uh, You're like, oh no. See, exactly. Exactly. See, are you stoked about this now? I can't. I can't tell. Yay. (laughs) So when I initially considered this as a topic, this idea of work, um, I literally typed in, why do we even work? Uh, I was just like, I mean, you know, I, I love what I do generally, but as with a lot of things, it can be a lot. And I ultimately assumed that I wasn't the only one who was curious about the history of work and in general, how work came to be the way it is today, which honestly, in some ways would be completely unfathomable to many way back when, but also isn't like all that much different, I guess. Um, Mm. So I'll start first by saying got a lot of great information from a bunch of great resources, such as the Envy database at Swarthmore, 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 that university, uh, worldhistory.org, Libcom, Britannica, the People's Space, Wikipedia, of course, Britannica, and the BBC. Ooh. So lots of great stuff out there about the history of work. There are even some really good books. Like I'm pretty sure there's a book called The History of Work or Why We Work or something. And a lot of people reference that. So if you want to get like real deep in it, go read that. This is not for you. This is, again, very <laughs> fifth grade vibe. So, all right, I don't want to bore you with really the details of every facet of this uh, or like get really heady. So I'm really just going to take you through kind of a meandering nature of what work really started as and where we are today. Let's take a peek here. I loved this diagram from the people space called a potted history of work because it sort of themes out work-based stuff in context from past to present, which provided the following. So if we start early on, right, we're getting into the reason why, and I'm not even sure that we could really call it work back then. I mean, I don't think they did, but it was subsistence. (laughs) We needed to eat. We needed to stay warm and dry. We needed a safe place to sleep, to take cover. And so everything we quote unquote worked for was really to keep us healthy, safe, and alive. And then somewhere along the line, work became less exciting 
And when they realized that they could potentially force others to do work for them in exchange for a livelihood, it resulted in this idea of slavery or serfdom. So then we transition into work being done in this regard with slaves and serfs. And with all the things that were being created and all these kind of special commodities or hot commodities, items began getting traded among societies, which resulted in some more substantial class divisions, right? This is really like the early stages of, yeah, class divides or like this idea of like wealthier, poorer. Mm. And so during the Renaissance coming in hot, the understanding of money really became tied to talent focused work. And this was, of course, fascinating to me because I was kind of at that point where I was like, there was a point in time, my brain going back to fifth grade history, where I remember being taught that there was a time when people were celebrated for doing things that they loved, more like creative work or work in that way. And so lo and behold, it's the Renaissance. Not that I would have recalled that. But that makes sense. <laughs> and it really was a time that people, because it was kind of this idea that work like, hey, you can make a livelihood, a decent livelihood out of doing things that you're just good at and that you enjoy mm -hmm. doing. Of course, nothing stayed that way for long. And of course, not everybody was in that situation, but creative jobs and jobs for, I wouldn't say like jobs for joy, but like more joyful, more interesting jobs then. So I'm like, hey, where's the Renaissance at? Can we have a second coming of that? But then the Reformation emerged. And work became more tied to morals and ethics, thanks to the Protestant church. And the idea that you were kind of more valuable in society if you did work, uh, especially if it was work that was considered essential. Does this ring any bells? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 I seem to remember something about that recently. <laughs> yeah. There's this like... They were a lot of people are getting sick and then they're like essential workers like yay mm. but usually we just like don't treat you so great so during this reformation period there was this idea that creative based jobs were kind of lesser than essential work kind of was something to be considered like more important or celebrated mm. and so uh, that was like a significant shift and i think of course, that type of works, when you start thinking about the jobs that people are doing in that way and industrial type work. So we're getting more into this surplus economy through industrial revolution, mass production of goods, and then also coupling it with the context of the time and how many people there were. We were like tripling in population. So yeah. the supply had to meet the demand and suddenly more people were needed to do the work and we've brought this upon ourselves, right? And so really, we have brought this upon ourselves, all this to say. So I was like reading through all this and I was like, well, this is interesting, sort of like it's it, this is what I mean when I say like, you know, fifth grade history, like I knew some of this. It was interesting to think about work as it transitioned through. And yeah. there's a reason why we go through that, why I go through this whole background. But so we're fast forwarding to where we are today, uh, or at least more current day. Uh, we're talking like 19th, 20th centuries, which brought on a lot of rapid change. And when I was looking at like workspaces and how people worked between like, especially the Renaissance or just before the Renaissance through to more of today, the modern day workspaces, particularly like for work from home, 
are very reflective of those centuries ago. So Augustine Chavez and DJ Huppets wrote in an article for the BBC's Work Life that essentially, and it showed depictions of the idea of the home office or um, office spaces from way back when, like you see on the screen, uh, mm. to now. And a lot of them consisted of the same thing, shelving, desks, chairs, pens or quill pens, paper. And most people worked from home during that period of time until some of these professions like lawyers or accountants or people who are working more in like manufacturing started working outside of the home or in office spaces and began sharing offices to kind of create this space or delineation between work and home. Um, They wanted more of that stark delineation. Uh, The idea was that home was for rest and family and that offices or these external spaces were specifically for work, particularly for workers of a, of a certain class. Right. So of course, whether working at home or working in an office, manufacturing facility, factory, at this point in time, we're talking like 19th century, we're even really talking today, work is nonstop. It was nonstop. The, that idea of that delineation between home and work or like the office was minimal. And that's a lot to do with the idea of abundance and greed at the top. And so there's so much so <laughs> in terms of issues with this idea of not having any cut and dry, like this is work, this is home, that like children were recruited to do dangerous and laborious work, right? Uh, sure. is out of desperation to produce more product. Um, and the conditions were atrocious and the benefits and pay were minimal. And ultimately when the people had had enough, they had had enough, which brings me to where things get a little more interesting and what I was really interested in walking into this or like approaching, why do we even work? Um, was really the creation of unions. Um, okay. Yeah. Have you ever been in a job with a union, Mike? Uh, let's see. I tertiary wise, um, most of my jobs have been more office work, uh, but I tend to work with people so right now I work in the auto industry. I don't repair vehicles myself, but there are members of a union mm. who do the actual technical repairing. Um, I'm more on the office side, mm. um, but I have so not yet had the pleasure. The trade union. Well, okay. So let's give you and your colleagues a little a little insight that you can, you know, ramp up for your colleagues um, in case you're ever in a conversation with them. You're like, hey, how about that union? Although maybe don't say that because some companies are <laughs> right. really sketchy about it. Who knows? Right. Um, <laughs> so all this to say, right, lots of challenges in terms of working conditions. And so enter unions. According to our good old friend, Wikipedia, there is no like. I guess, concrete evidence of official trade unions existing before the 18th century. However, I did find some evidence of equivalent sort of uh, things called trade guilds, um, specifically in Mesopotamia around like circa 230, 2334 BC. 
they didn't seem to operate exactly uh, in parallel or like specifically the same way that trade unions or just unions in general work today. But it, the trade guilds more so set the standard for certain types of work involving things like ship work. So it helped set the standard. It was like a lot of standard setting, like the number yeah. of crew based upon the weight and size of a ship, some discussions on wage. Additionally, Wikipedia it on the Wikipedia site it did mention the current misconception that some unions, as we know them today, I thought this was really interesting, are based off of Marxist philosophy, which is totally incorrect. Mm. Because at the beginning of trade unions, at least here in the US, they date back to the late 1700s. And yeah. about a century before, that's about a century before the infamous uh, Communist Marx. Manifesto drop. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so there are a lot of misconceptions out there. So we're also debunking some things here. But um, if you look at those dates, they don't align. So although I think there's some nods back and forth between unions and Karl Marx and all of that, um, unions were not formed because of Karl Marx or because of the Communist Manifesto. So if you're out there thinking that they were, or you have old school parents who think they were, that is not true. Britannica, this is where I found kind of the first seemingly hyper-organized labor union, which originated in Great Britain, uh, also parts of Europe, or I guess labor unions worldwide. Uh, Great Britain, parts of Europe, and also in the U.S., more official organized unions uh, in the late 1800s. So there was a lot of unionized behavior as early as Mesopotamia, 2334 BC. Um, but <laughs> like the hyper organization of them, many had tried. Oh, and I should move through some of these images here. Many of kind of these like attempted labor trade union groups had really uh, tried to especially England. So on the screen, actually, we have um, this reform in parliament. It was a petition in 1793. And it was an attempt at a labor movement at the level of parliament. Uh, and they wanted to petition to the king uh, for better working conditions via a labor movement. Um, so similar to today, uh, standing up and maintaining a labor union is not really uh, an easy feat, and unions are consistently pushed back against and resented for the work that they do, uh, which is ironically <laughs> to improve working and wage conditions for people on the ground. Um, and as someone who has been a part of unions, teachers, unions, etc., I've worked in a lot of public sectors uh, that have been in the education sphere, and I have been a part of unions they can be wildly helpful, especially mm. when you're up against unfair or unjust leadership, people who are really abusing power. That's when especially unions can be so supportive. Yes, of course, in contractual uh, leveraging contracts and everything, which is actually really interesting because there's kind of this bifurcation I noticed in unions as well. The challenges exist across the board with getting unions stood up. But in Great Britain, um, if you are aware of their politics at all, they have something called the Labour Party. Yeah. And so they actually took the political route to standing up for 
the working person by creating a party, a political party dedicated to that work. So the Labour Party is one of the dominating political parties, um, and that was formed in Great Britain uh, to support labor efforts. In the U.S., unions, instead of turning them, they are very political, but instead of turning it into a political party, per se, it became a collective bargaining unit, uh, which leverages contracts and at the at the employment level, like at the company or organization level to help push employment and working condition wins. So I thought that was really interesting how there are these kind of like bifurcation of routes that, you know, different countries or cultures have taken to try to make improvements. And I didn't delve so deeply into this that I was able to find out information about like the success or not of either of those. I'm sure there's tons of research out there on that. Um, Like, is it better to rope this into your political system or is it better to not intentionally rope it into your political system, let it go totally haywire in your political system, but be a collective bargaining unit? I don't know. (laughs) Um, But as work has changed, expectations of workers' rights uh, or workers' expectation of workers rightfully have changed too. So as economies have ebbed and flowed, the introduction of economic processes and currency has dominated and greed continued to kind of grow at the top of a lot of these corporations and organizations. Politics have been swayed in more ways than one. Many issues, as you can kind of see from these documents and just general experiences in history, continue to persevere. For all of the change in work and ways of working and conditions and expectations, they honestly don't seem all that different from way back when to today. So I'm going to quickly give, this is my twist. I'm going to talk about the first ever documented labor strike. Ooh. Yes. So what's fascinating to me is that we can go as far back as 1100 BCE to find the very first known documented worker strike. So according to Joshua Mark from the World History Encyclopedia, the strike happened in 1159 BCE by a group of tomb builders and artisans under the reign of Ramesses III leading up to his 30-year jubilee. Uh, which was a, essentially an over-the-top, lavish celebration of the king. Um, mm-hmm. The queen, before she passed in England, had her jubilee recently. I don't remember what year it was. What it was like 50 or something? Under it, she was, yeah, she was, yeah, she was wicked old. So it was whatever that was. But she had her jubilee. And here we are recording this at the time of the week of the coronation. So lots of lavish parties if you're a king or a queen. Um, Your people apparently like to celebrate you or you like to celebrate yourself, whatever. Um, (laughs) So (laughs) we're at that point in time. I'm going to set the stage a little here. Prior to the strike, a series of very unfortunate events happened. And if I didn't mention, we're talking about Egypt here. So we're in Egypt. So a series of very unfortunate events due to an invasion of Egypt caused this exorbitant death toll a depletion of the country's resources due to the investment in the war and the lack of people who were available to do things like tend to crops and tend to land because they were fighting in that war or dying in that war. And then ultimately corrupt officials, what's new, uh, taking advantage of that turmoil and pocketing resources. So this was an intense war. And post-war, 
was really challenging. Work was plentiful in many ways. There's much to do after this kind of war happened, but people were far and few between because they were wicked dead. So people were really hungry and they were starving there and their wages uh, for the work that they were doing coming out of this war and this kind of turmoil, they continued to go underpaid, unpaid, or significant delays in payments. Mm. So in light of that current economic status, the whole Jubilee situation, they were continuing, fast forward, the planning of a very expensive impending Jubilee, despite all of the stuff that was going on. And the people determined like enough is enough. This is insane. The wages were weeks late. They were unable to feed themselves, feed their family. Uh, And the idea of this extravagant party planned in honor of a king instead of feeding the people who fought so hard on behalf of the monarchy at that point was like essentially the equivalent of a gut punch. So the workers took to the streets. They marched long. They marched hard, like three years hard, maybe more slightly. Yes. They shouted uh, in the streets, we are hungry. They staged sit-ins all throughout the king's property. So there's actually a map on the screen on kind of the coastline of Egypt. Uh, And there are several underlined spaces of temples um, that belong to the king. And those were areas where there were significant sit-ins or um, destruction or uh, just general protests that were going on all throughout that area. So, and throughout all of this, and I meant to listen to this auditorily to pronounce this right, I'm going to ask you to pronounce it. Oh, me. Thank you. <laughs> yes, that's, you're welcome. That's, why? That's, that's, Listen, so um, there's something called M-A apostrophe A-T. And it's the it's like an Egyptian cultural expectation. Ma'at, maybe? Ma'at, ma'at. ma'at. Um, yeah. yeah. Maybe the one people, of our listeners could call in. Yeah, I meant to listen to this and I failed. I failed really poorly. It was not good of me here. But there is this ancient idea, this ancient Egyptian idea of ma'at or the universal communal and personal balance of the world function according to the will of the gods that must be maintained and it applies to every living being. So it's like a core function of their principles of being Egyptian. Um, And they kept referring to this as saying, like, you're not taking care of us. You are a king. Um, This is a communal effort. Uh, Care is universal. And so they kept kind of coming back to that idea of this being critical. In an attempt to end the strike, uh, the government of the time and the monarchy uh, ordered pastries to feed the people on the streets, Um, obviously. That didn't work. I'm sure the people were like, thank you, but no, that didn't work. Thanks and- for my <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Thanks for this muffin. Um, the olive cake was delicious, but I'm going to go destroy this temple. So it didn't work. Uh, and they actually began breaking into temples and rooms, demanding that they be paid for their work. Um, they be paid their wages in order to even return to work. And so over and over and over, the workers went on strike for late payments. This continue was like continuous. Um, again, it, it, I saw different reports, but about three years, like on and off, this went on. 
Um, and eventually it was said that the workers were no longer striking due to late wages, but that ultimately it became a strike of overarching inequality and clear disregard for that principle, that ancient Egyptian principle and the king just not caring for his people. Somehow an agreement was finally reached and the outcome isn't really fully known exactly what that agreement was, but it was noted that the power dynamics had really shifted during this period of time. And the people suddenly had this deeper expectation for their government and for their king. So the history of this was actually recorded on a papyrus scroll and it was discovered in Deir el Medina. And it is thought to have been written by Amun Ankt. I can't pronounce this correctly, apparently. Um, Amenat, the local scribe to that area um, at that time. So uh, that is how they kind of discovered the what they have as the first official documented strike. That's so, so I know. I was like, this is so fascinating. Um, so what I will do, I'm hoping that this works. You're going to have to tell me if you can hear it through there. Mm-hmm. Um, so Labor Day is a holiday, not just in the U.S. We celebrate it in early September, but it's you know celebrated throughout the world in different countries at different times. In fact, um, at the point that we're recording this in early May, Brazil's Labor Day was May 1st. Um, so we have much to thank our labor and trade unions for constantly fighting to ensure our working hours are shorter, our pay is fair, our conditions are as healthy as they possibly can be. And obviously the work is never done. And we know that work-life balance in many countries, including the U.S., is honestly non-existent. And But had it not been for people demanding to be treated as human or on this, you know, the sketchy rock that we're all sitting on spinning through the universe on fire, our time here would be a lot worse for wear. So I'm going to end with a labor song. I am not going to sing it, but I'm going to end with a labor song called Eight Hour Strike. It was originally by someone named Billy Pastor. Um, but this version, because I think that guy is like, you know, long gone. Um, I don't know if they've recorded anything from him. I couldn't find it, but this is performed by Pete Seeger. Um, And the song rings true today. And I will just call out the chorus before I play it. But on repeat in the chorus, uh, the lyrics are striking for the right, then close the ranks of labor up and show the world your might striking for the right boys, striking for the right eight hours a day and decent pay. It, It is for that they fight. Um, so let me, and actually I have, uh, is it going to show up here? Can you hear it? It's playing. We're brave and gallant miner boys who work in underground. For courage and good nature, no finer can be found. We work both late and early and get but little pay to support our wives and children in free america if satan took the black legs i'm sure it would be no sin but peace and happiness would be for us poor working men eight hours we'd have for working Eight hours we'd have for play, eight hours we'd have for sleeping in free America. 
I will not address the gender situation because yep. I think we all know what's going on there. Um, obviously, we know that all gender representation is working um, and there's significant discrepancy there. But for the the nod to the times there, that, my friends, is the history of work, a fifth grade level with a twist. <laughs> I like it very much. I like the... <laughs> The music at the end. Thank you. I especially like uh, how the singer made um, America at the end. There. <laughs> little trying. Little, little yes. trying America. You. Um, to make it work within the song. Um, also timely. <laughs> it work. Yeah. Also timely with the coronation of uh, King Charles. Right. Um, we have the Writers Guild of America, I believe, are striking as of today. Ah. Uh. Uh, yes. Very timely. That's as of recording. Um, so as when you're listening recording. to this, who knows? Hopefully, mm-hmm. everything they've asked for has uh, been mm-hmm. happily given. <laughs> happily is the keyword there. I think happily, happily given. Um, yeah. We'll see what happens, but maybe we'll see what happens. I hope, <laughs> if nothing else, people can walk away from this though, thinking like, like. The reason you're, if you are in the U.S. working an eight-hour day at an office job or just working in conditions where you have some semblance of control or, like, your wage is, you know, above minimum wage or what have you as part of a union, the work that unions do is significant. And you have them to thank for a lot of those conditions, whether you're a part of one or not. It is okay I am not currently a part of a union that offered where I work right now, but it is okay to question what you were told to believe about these entities. Are there unions out there who are crappy? Yes. There's a lot of people and things out there that are crappy. As a whole, unions are really trying to make sure that people aren't screwed over. And so, you know, just like step back from your pedestal and just like question for a second. Just ask yourself like, do I have to believe what I was told to believe or like, Hey, is there another like way to think about this? So mm-hmm. anyway, that's think all for critically. me. Yeah. That's what yeah. we try and teach in history is to think critically. Um, yeah. A lot of it isn't great. If you're reading history and you're really enjoying yourself, then it's not, <laughs> you're not doing the right thing. Um, yeah. There's a lot of bad in history and it, it teaches us how to move forward and to progress. Um, yeah. Which is a nice segue yes. into my story. If Play it you're on okay me. with it, I will give a content warning uh, that the following uh, story deals with injustice against injustice. Wow, <laughs> that's a new word for me. Can you explain the definition of that? Yeah, I would uh, like you to find that word. <laughs> country of origin, please. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave all this in. I'm not going to edit it out because it is what it is. Um, it is injustice it is. against yeah. a gender non-conforming individual. Mm-hmm. So I uh, have a few sources here, like uh, newyorkhistory.org, of course, Wikipedia. You can always count on them. Oh, uh, Colonial Williamsburg. Oh, my God. We're going back Ooh. to colonial days. Oh, my gosh. Um, Encyclopedia Virginia. Mm-hmm. Untoldhistory.com. Ooh, that and, seems legit. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> dot org. Um, 
and meeting minutes from um, a council of colonial Virginia. Mm. Fancy. So today, hello, I see your cat back there. I do have a little friend who's uh, intruding. Yeah, no she's word. really pumped for this story. So <laughs> okay. she came right up. All, All right, right, let's well, do this. Here we go. So today I'd like to discuss something uh, that while taking place in colonial America, here you see a map of colonial Virginia. It's still just as present today. As of recording this episode, there's a rise of anti-LGBTQ rhetoric. Those who haven't studied history incorrectly believe that this is something kind of like a new phenomena, trans, intersex persons. Um, and unfortunately, when people are afraid of something, um, they like to single people out to blame as the other. That said, I'd like to introduce you to Thomasine Hall. Ooh. I'll be using they for the pronouns as okay. Thomas or Thomasine themselves often switch gendered pronouns throughout. So I feel like this is the safest way for me to go about. So if I do use a he or a she, I'll try to correct myself. I am a human. I might make a mistake. So I'll do my best. All right. Get All right. Permission to correct you. Please. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. According to Thomasine Hall's own account, they were born and named Thomasine in uh, England in the town Newcastle upon Tyne around 1600, and they were raised as a woman. Around age 12, Thomasine moved to London to live with her aunt, and not much is known about their early life. Around the age of 24, Thomasine's brother was drafted into the English army, and Thomasine was like, hey, I want some of that war too. Uh, so <laughs> they cut their hair, they dressed in men's clothing, and went by the name of Thomas while serving in the army for a whole year. Hmm. Uh, when their service ended, Thomas settled in Plymouth, England, and began living as Thomasine again. After a few years, Thomasine sought opportunities in the English colonies in North America and became an indentured servant. On the left-hand side of that screen, there's an example of... Hmm. Um, and indentured servants paperwork uh this is more from the 17th century so it wouldn't be exactly thomasine's but similar enough hmm. to be used for our example uh so in 1627 they dressed as a man named thomas to travel across the atlantic ocean and when they reached virginia thomas began working for a plantation owner named john tyos on his tobacco plantation and that's what you see on the right hand side a typical uh, colonial tobacco farm so like i had mentioned they were dressed in men's clothing going by the name thomas initially uh, but later would switch to women's clothing and would then do more traditional female labor um, hmm. So not working out in the field so much, but more like uh, housework was more in the colonial period, what they would be doing. Although the plantation owner, John Tyus, had no problem with this switch from Thomas to Thomasine, uh, rumors uh, in the colony hmm. began to spread that Thomasine had committed the crime of fornication uh, hmm. with a mate from another household. So can't have anything good. So a trial was required. <laughs> to determine uh. if Thomasine was um, a man or a woman. So this is where it gets kind of weird. Three respected married women of the community 
inspected Thomasine's body um, and concluded that Thomasine physically was presented as a man. However, the plantation owner, John Tayos, uh, continued to insist, no, 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 Thomasine is a lady. Um, so there was a lot of confusion back and forth, um, and it became worse when another plantation owner, his name being John Atkins, considered buying, buying Thomasine's contract from John Tayos. But the way things were structured back then, uh, you received a certain amount of, um, I wouldn't really call it pay, but basically how much you had to work off as an indentured servant differed between if you were uh, gender, but also like the color of your skin, like a whole bunch of different things. So there needed to be a settled kind of decision. Decision. Thank you. Yeah. uh, As to what's going on. So uh, it gets weirder again because even though you had those three ladies they're like yeah we'll take a look they and john tyos the plantation owner waited till thomasine was asleep Mm. and uh, inspected again (sighs) so they found that there was uh, male anatomy however Mm. there was also female Uh. anatomy um, neither were fully functional. Um, this was found out after Thomasine had woken up and described that neither was working in a traditional mm-hmm. gendered capacity. <laughs> uh, <laughs> trying to figure out the way around that one. Like uh, anat- their anatomical functions were not. Correct. Yes, were yes. not okay. like vagina for woman. Right, right. Male, kind of thing. So the community didn't really know what to do with it. Uh, so, of course, when a community doesn't know what to do with someone and is seeking to blame something, oh, uh, no. they then punish that person. Oh, so Thomasine uh, found themselves standing before the quarter court of Virginia in 1629. The governor at the time heard Thomasine's account and declared that Thomasine would henceforth be recognized as both male and female. Hmm. Um, And in order to avoid any confusion, Thomasine was mandated to wear a combination of male and female clothing. Uh, On the next screen, um, we're going to see kind of Um. like the gendered clothing that's on the left-hand side. You see the traditional male the traditional female and then on the right hand side of more um this is what l- women at the time um, feminine presenting women at the time were expected to wear so this wasn't really a satisfactory outcome for anyone right uh, uh, no. because like thomasine couldn't switch between what they were feeling at the time people who weren't in the know would see someone in the colony that had uh, both male and female gendered clothing. Um, mm-hmm. So they were being ostracized for that. And then they were just being ostracized within their community as being other. But the court didn't really do anything to address any of these lingering questions about um, what Thomasine could do, what type of work Thomasine could perform in the future. At this point, 
Thomasine kind of disappears from our official records, really leaving us with no information uh, as to how their story concluded. Uh-huh. But it's it's very interesting. It's very sad. It's very unfortunately topical. Yeah. Today, Again. every week that goes by, even though we're recording, um, you're hearing this probably much later than this was recorded. But things just keep going in a very strange mm-hmm. and unfortunate direction, and I hope it doesn't. Um, we see an artist's rendering of how Thomasine Hall may have had to dress um, in both feminine and masculine presenting gender. Uh. I wanted to end this uh, with a quote from Ren Tolson in their mm. article, Seeing Eye to Eye on Colonial Williamsburg, Williamsburg.org. I really recommend anyone who's kind of intrigued by this and wants to learn more about Thomas, Thomasine, um, to please check that out, um, along with also doing some more research about them. This was a person, here's the quote. This was a person who, when asked to define themselves cleanly for others and at no small cost to themselves, spoke their own truth, who identified openly as both a man and a woman and did not waver from that. Even as their neighbors ordered them into gendered clothing, demanded they submit their body to examinations, and declared Thomas Thomasine's gender for them. When asked, Thomasine spoke their own truth and continued to speak it again and again, even as the situation and consequences for doing so escalated. Today, we honor them by putting a face to their name and telling their story beyond the prosecution that they suffered. Thomasine Hall, veteran, tradesperson, man, woman, and intersex Virginian. That is my unfortunate story from history that makes me say, okay, WTF. WTF. True that. You definitely win the award for this one, my friend. It's, Where, like, how did you find this story? Like, so, what? Yeah. I had begun when we started talking about this subject, about looking at not only stories from our own past, but mm-hmm. uh, throughout history. I I wanted to try and find voices mm. that seem to have been lost to history mm. or did not um, appear in fifth grade mm-hmm. social studies classes. Um, I know that myself as a straight white male, having the privilege of just being born that Mm. uh, and always wanting to be an ally wanted to make sure to speak power to the names of the people who have been forgotten or who have Mm -hmm. been um, part of any injustices in the past Uh, so I kind of set out in my research to hyper focus on that and then find some weird things along the way um, so this is one that I found a while ago, but I wanted to treat with compassion and, uh, yeah, with as mm-hmm. much um, honor as I could. Well, awesome job, my friend. I th- I wonder how many people know about Thomas Thomasine's story. Like, 
not many. It, like, yeah, especially I mean, even people in the community. So I this is a thing, right? And it's it's <laughs> you see Thomasine Thomas, and mm-hmm. they were just one example, right? Yeah. Um, but going by what we know about genetics, what little and how much we know, we know mm-hmm. that gender is a spectrum. And it expresses itself not in X or Y, but in combinations Mm -hmm. so many that we're not told about that for sure there were other people in colonial Virginia, even neighbors of Thomasine, that were intersex and Mm -hmm. may not have even known it or knew it and hit it or, yeah, hit it or chose to use Thomasine Mm -hmm. as a scapegoat. Yeah, uh, for their own fears or yeah uh, insecurities. So uh, awful. Uh, it should be a downer, but uh, no, because it's also not a downer. Because I think the uh, moral of the story is yeah. is I mean, the world has a long way to go, but to be so true to who you are in a time where anyone would want you to be anything but is so important. Yeah, and... there was. I don't want to misgender. I believe Congresswoman. Congressperson. Um, I'll, I'll say Congressperson. Yeah, yeah, that's probably for the best. Uh, but they were just ousted uh, from one of the mis- Midwestern oh, states. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yep. I saw that. I saw and that article. So when I was like finishing up this article, that's all I could think about was like, this is still happening, but it's also thanks to the technology we have for communication it's way more visible now um yeah. than thomasine's own story was so it's yeah it's kind of like are we better are we not better we're more informed and unfortunately yeah. some of us are choose to be ignorant of what yeah. information is available um because of their own fear and insecurities which is sad and i pity them but yeah are you talking about zoe zephyr that's it thank yep. you yes sorry just coming to me montana um thank you. Yep. yes yeah <laughs> have, there's so much insecurity in this world and uh for all the fighting that is done to be able to live life in a way that is true to the individual it's always fascinating to me when that comes from people who are doing active oppression um, and intentional oppression. It's just, I will never understand it. I will never understand it. So yeah. Uh, I'm glad you were able to tell their story and we'll keep telling all the, all the stories, all the things that make you go, okay, WTF. Because OKWTF about our world today and how it's, I think both of our stories reflect the, you know, two steps forward, 10 steps backward situation. There's such parallels between the 15 and 1600s and 2023 today, because religion has such a stronghold on this country and on people worldwide. And even just like in thinking about the history of work and labor unions and trade unions. And, and then I just like, and then all of it, I just want to step back and be like, why does anybody give an 
about anything like about yeah. any of this stuff like who cares about what does it matter yeah it does what does it matter we are on a rock that is on fire flying <laughs> through a, a massive expanse of darkness what does it matter to you right. <laughs> like truly and that is the part that i will never ever get over is that we all have no idea what's going on and yeah, yeah it's just <sighs> we know it's preaching to the choir here but yeah <laughs> i think you win the okwtf award this week my friend um we shall see <laughs> we shall see as in as in maybe I, our audience will be uh, like, i i want them to i know once we release these you gotta we we need to know we gotta put some polls out or something with it yeah. um maybe we'll host a live one we keep saying that but at some point that'd be cool because i can do a live poll well as always this has been an absolute joy um thank you for teaching me something as always me something <laughs> i am excited to share this story that you have shared today uh because i think many would benefit yeah, I hope so. I mean, that's always, I know we we have some fun ones in there. Definitely. We need to have fun. We need to have levity. Yes. Uh, there, as part of the OKWTF, OK like you mentioned before, there's going to be like, okay, WTF? And then there's going to be, okay, yeah. what? WTF? Like, yeah. <laughs> so, it's an umbrella. Intonation and, matters. On yes. It all yeah. contributes. It all contributes. We're ebbing and flowing here, but we persevere. That's right. I'm so grateful to you sitting with me weekly and having this these chats. So onward and upward, am I right? That's right. I can't wait <laughs> till next time. I can't wait till next time. We'll catch I'll catch you then with or without my fur friends here. <laughs> Thanks for getting weird with us. Submit your own OKWTF stories for us to share by visiting www.okwtfpodcast.com. And stay in touch on all the social platforms at OKWTF Podcast. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to OKWTF on your streaming service of choice. Thank you so much to Out of Flux and Ayal Talmudi for the use of their song, Da Boom Jiggle. And thank you to Bilal Sarwar for their incredible cover art. Until next time. <laughs>